So our speaker for this weekend is Dr. Martin Cooley. Martin is the pastor of leadership development at Willingdon Church in Burnaby, B.C., where he directs the Willingdon School of the Bible, about 1,200 students uh, that come from the Lower Mainland, largely from the church there, and he's also developing the B.C. Pastoral Training Institute. Uh, He served as professor of New Testament and Greek at Briarcrest College and Seminary for 10 years, and prior to that was a Bible translator and a translation consultant for many years. Marty and his wife, Joanna, have been married for 27 years and have three grown children. Uh, Marty has preached and taught in many different countries of the world, has uh, degrees in linguistics and biblical studies and and divinity. And uh, I personally got to know him uh, through his classes at Briarcrest, uh, sat under his ministry there um, in a class on biblical interpretation. And once when he took us as a group of people at Serve, which was a Briarcrest initiative for pastors and lay people, took us through the book of Revelation in four sessions. He's, uh, his bio says he's uh, working on a book of, on Revelation, so that should be interesting. We've asked Marty to speak eight times during this weekend. And so I would encourage you with the words of the Apostle Paul where he says to all of us, In Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So anytime your pastor or perhaps you um, or anyone stands up to proclaim the word of God, I pray that God will give them wisdom to proclaim, to proclaim the message of Jesus and his gospel and the word of God clearly. And that's our prayer for Marty tonight as he comes to share the word of God with us. Uh, God bless you. Um, we've had a great time with him already as pastors and spouses, and we're looking forward to uh, be doing that together as a larger group. Thank you, Jim. Well, it is such a privilege to be with you. It's a privilege to be able to come and share from God's Word with you, Uh, but the real privilege for me so far has been to join with you in worshiping the Lord, uh, to see how you are supporting one another, bearing one another's burdens, spurring one another on, and it's been just a delight to hear what God is doing uh, among the AGC churches. So, Uh, Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be with you uh, tonight. Over the next four sessions, um, I'm going to be sharing some thoughts from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it's a a passage of Scripture that has been in many ways a a lifeline for me over the years. Um, I've been in ministry for two and a half, three decades now, uh, faced a lot of challenges, as many of you have, uh, often ministering in, in deep weakness. Um, health has not been one of my strong points, uh, but I've learned over the years that the Lord often uh, uses the challenges in our lives and the weaknesses that we, that we have uh, to draw us deeper into a relationship with Him and actually to make us far more fruitful in ministry than we would be if we were strong and felt capable in our own power to do what he's called us to do. And 2 Corinthians 4 has a lot to teach us about dependency on the Lord. Our our focus is really going to be on uh, 
how do we persevere for the long haul in following Jesus? Life can be challenging. Whether you're in ministry or not, life can be a burden. We often uh, face things that we never dreamed we would have to face in life. And sometimes it can rock us to the core of our soul. And this passage of Scripture, this chapter of Scripture, I think you're going to find has much to teach us about how we can endure through the challenges of life and let God use the challenges of life to actually make us stronger and better equipped to bear much fruit to the glory of His name. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we will be focusing our attention. And before I read that, let's pray together. Father, we recognize that as we open your word, we are on holy ground. For these are your very words, spoken from your heart, revelation from the very heart of God uh, to us. And Father, we don't want to take that lightly. We want to come to your word with reverence and respect. We want to come with open hearts. We want to come, Lord, with responsive hearts. And for some of us, Lord, because of the challenges of life, we might come with hearts that are a bit bruised and battered. We might come with hearts that are even hardened. And Lord, wherever we're at, we pray that you would soften the soil of our hearts, that they might be receptive to what you would have to say to us. And we invite you by your Holy Spirit, as we gather together around 2 Corinthians 4, to do your work in our lives. Lord, you know exactly what every person uh, in this sanctuary tonight needs. You know our deepest needs. And we ask you, by your Spirit, would you graciously come and meet us where we're at so that we can become better equipped to serve you, so that we can see you as you are and give you the glory that is due your name. Thank you, Father. We look forward to what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4. And what I'm going to do uh, tonight, I'm going to be doing something that I, I can't remember actually ever doing before, and that is I'm going to preach on one verse. Uh, as I looked at how to divide up this chapter, I, I got stuck on verse 1. It's a verse that I think you're going to agree. We tend to just quickly read by, uh, uh, but there's a lot there. But I'd like to begin tonight, begin our sessions together by reading the whole chapter so that as we're looking at each piece, we're going to have the whole context in view. So uh, follow along with me. I'm reading from the uh, NIV 1984 here. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in, in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So tonight, as I said, we're going to be focusing on verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And you're going to hear me talk a lot about ministry tonight and over the course of the next four sessions, but that doesn't mean that these are messages simply for those who are in vocational ministry. Because every one of us, young and old alike, who claim to be a follower of Jesus, actually have a ministry or many ministries. So these messages are for all of us, and they're a word, I think, from the Lord to help us persevere in following Jesus for the long haul. I spend a lot of time teaching on the book of Revelation, and as Jim mentioned, I'm I'm working on actually two books on Revelation. One will be uh, sort of for anyone, and the other will be the big commentary sort of book. But if you know anything about the book of Revelation, it is a book that calls us to live as overcomers. It's a book that calls us to persevere to the end. If you run the race really, 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 really well, but you quit before the finish line, there's no prize. God calls each of us to persevere to the end, and that's really what we want to be focusing on tonight and in the next messages. Well, chapter 4, in case you didn't notice, repeats language at the very beginning, verse 1, and in verse 16. And the language is this, therefore... We do not lose heart. You notice that in verse 1. Look down at verse 16. It starts in the same way. And that really tells us, as bookends to this chapter, this is what the chapter is about. How not to lose heart when we face the challenges that all of us face in life. 
So Paul is concerned with the deep weariness and even despair that can come to followers of Jesus as we go through this race of life. And no one understood those challenges, I'm convinced, better than Paul himself. You'll recall right from the beginning of Paul's ministry, God sent Ananias to Paul as he was there in Damascus, still blinded from his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent Ananias to tell Paul the wonderful plan that God had for his life. Do you remember what Ananias said? God said to Ananias, I'm reading from Acts 9, 15 to 16, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And if you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that that prophecy from God himself came true. From the beginning of Paul's days, following the Lord Jesus in Damascus when he had to flee for his life, right till the end of his days when by tradition he was martyred for his faith under the Emperor Nero, Paul faced suffering. We're going to be looking at some of his description of that suffering later in our time together. But for now, just flip back uh, to 2 Corinthians 1 for a minute and let me uh, show you how he introduces himself to the Corinthians. If I can get my pages apart here. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. This actually is a passage that my my wife went back to many times. We lived in Asia for four years, and those were hard, hard years for us, and particularly for her. Listen to Paul's words here. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened, this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the the dead. You can tell from Paul's words here that he has faced some dark times in his life as he's writing to the Corinthians. He has faced challenges, and we have to recognize that serving the Lord is no guarantee that life is going to go smoothly. In fact, the reality is it's almost a guarantee that life is not going to go smoothly. We are going to face challenges as we seek to shepherd the family of God or we just seek to be godly parents and shepherd our children who face so many challenges in this world today. The more we choose to follow Jesus, the reality is the more we will be a target for the evil one much like Job was. So if you're a pastor in particular, a pastor's family, it's like you have a big spiritual target on your back and you need to be prepared for what is going to come. Praise the Lord, God is sovereign and the evil one can only touch us as he allows us, as he allows him to. So how do we press on in following Jesus? How do we avoid losing heart? The starting point, God tells us through Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.1, is to understand the mercy of God. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, 
We do not lose heart. And I think for most of my life, reading that passage, I've read it hundreds of times, for most of my life, I think I just blew right by it because I didn't get how the mercy of God relates to not losing heart in ministry, to not losing heart in following Jesus for the long haul. So that's what we want to look at tonight. How does the mercy of God relate to not losing heart in ministry, not losing heart in following Jesus? Well, we've got a therefore at the beginning of our chapter, and it's actually, if you read Greek, it's not a real strong expression for therefore, so there's a fairly loose link to what uh, goes before. It's more pointing forward in this case, but I want to begin by looking back at chapter 3, the immediately preceding context, to see what Paul is building on here. So let me read verses uh, 12 to 18 for us. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. So what is God getting at through Paul in this passage? Point number one, God's mercy removes spiritual blindness. God's mercy removes spiritual blindness. Paul knew that if God hadn't removed his veil as a Pharisee, he would have never actually understood the Word of God that he had been studying for so many years. Until God opened his eyes in this close encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul thought he was doing God a favor by trying to destroy the church. But God gave Paul an object lesson at the time of his conversion. So you remember, Saul of Tarsus meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He is blinded, and for several days, whatever period of time, he, reminds, he remains blinded as he lays in bed in Damascus until God sends Ananias to pray for him. <clears throat> and when Ananias prays for him, something like scales falls from his eyes, and his physical eyes are able to see again. But through that, Paul came to understand, I think, in a very uh, tangible way, the reality of spiritual blindness. Everyone outside of Christ has this veil that makes them incapable of understanding the gospel and incapable of understanding the Word of God. And as Paul reflects on his ministry in chapter 4, verse 1, and as Paul says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, part of what he is saying is this. He recognizes that if God doesn't act, 
if God doesn't open the eyes of unbelievers, then there will be no fruit in ministry. And so it ultimately doesn't depend on him. It ultimately depends on God. And that's why he doesn't lose heart when he doesn't see results. Because the results ultimately are not Paul's responsibility. Paul's responsibility, your responsibility, my responsibility is to be faithful. God's responsibility is to open the eyes and hearts of unbelievers. Listen to how Scripture describes this in the conversion of Lydia in Acts 16.14. Let me just read that for us. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It is only through God's mercy that anyone can come to be saved. It's not ultimately up to me or you. You know, God illustrated this in a profound way for me a number of years ago uh, when I was living in Karenport. Um, some of you have been to Briarcrest, right? Are you familiar with Briarcrest's uh, Christmas musical that they do every year? It's this, it's this amazing production. Uh, a lot of years, the building is quite a bit bigger than this, maybe twice as far back. And oftentimes, in the middle of the production, from the height of the ceiling in the back, you will see an angel come flying from the back to the very front on a cable. I mean, it's pretty cool, pretty amazing. A couple of days after uh, watching the Christmas musical at Briarcrest, I was in a small church in Saskatchewan that shall remain unnamed, and they were doing a Christmas program. And I, I, I have to confess that the program was, without question, the worst Christmas program I had ever seen. Every note was off-key. All of the actors in the Christmas play were forgetting their lines. And at the end of that, the pastor gave, got up and presented the gospel in just about five minutes. All the content was there, but it was not a very compelling presentation. And I found out afterwards he had a 103-degree temperature, and the guy was just trying to stand on his feet. And he presented the gospel, and I thought in my sinful heart, how in the world could anybody get saved from that gospel presentation and this gong show of a Christmas program? And the pastor proceeded to give an altar call, and he said, while we're singing the three stanzas of this song, if you want to come and give your life to Jesus... I want you to come forward. So a young girl came, and she was leading uh, the hymn, and the microphone kept cutting in and out, and just this gong show was going on and on and on. And the third stanza, a young man of about 25 comes barreling down the, the aisle and gives his life to Jesus. And it was such a beautiful reminder that it is through God's mercy that we have this ministry, so we don't need to lose heart when we don't seem to be performing up to our own standards, we don't need to lose heart when we don't see fruit, ultimately, because it is God who takes the responsibility for bringing the fruit. We just need to be faithful. And that brings us to a second and related point that I think is critically important, at least for me, and that is this. God's mercy trumps our incompetence. God's mercy trumps our incompetence. I don't know about you, but I think we sometimes think 
God chose Paul because he was such a uniquely qualified man to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And in a very real sense, he was. He was the up-and-coming Bible scholar of his day. He was a guy who was filled with passion. And we, and we would easily look at him and say, if only that passion was redirected uh, in a direction that could bring honor to the Lord and build God's church. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. But what I find remarkable is that Paul, in describing himself, never goes back to his credentials in order to say, here's where my competence comes from. In fact, quite the contrary, we know from Philippians 3 that he counted all of that as worthless, as done. And in 2 Corinthians 3, if you look uh, in the chapter there, right uh, a little bit above where we just were, look at what he says in verses 4 to 6. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So to feel incompetent in ministry is actually not a bad thing. You see, our culture teaches us that what you want to strive for is to be independent. Scripture teaches us that the more you grow in your faith, the more dependent you're going to be on the Lord. Scripture teaches us that without Him, we can do nothing. Not without Him, we won't be quite as good, but without Him, we can do nothing. So God's mercy trumps our incompetence. And one of the challenges that I think we face when we're starting to lose heart in ministry, what we really need to ask first and foremost is this. Are we beginning to think that our ministry depends on us? If we're thinking that way, we're completely off base. Our ministry depends on the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit working through us, yes, and we need to be faithful, yes, but ultimately our ministry does not depend on us, it depends on God. If it depended on me, I would have given up a long time ago. In fact, let me let you in on a little secret. I have gone from being a missionary to being a professor, and praise God, I've finally been promoted to being a pastor. I never thought I would be a pastor. I never thought I would be a professor. I thought I would be a missionary working in the jungles of Erie and Jaya all of my days, in part, in part because that's where my heart is, but also in part because I saw that and not being a professor as a very good fit. Because if you do one of the personality tests, Myers-Briggs, anybody ever done that one? I'm off the chart introvert. I'm happiest in a closet with a book, not talking to people. But when God calls us to do something, he actually makes us competent. Sometimes we think, if I don't have this gifting, this gift set, I am excluded from this ministry. I want to say that sometimes God calls you to the ministry, and it's only when you say, yes, Lord, that he gives you the gifting, that he gives you the competence in order to carry out that ministry. I praise the Lord that I don't have to depend on my competence, 
but I can rest in his sure competence. All of us in ministry, all of us in life, should have the attitude that Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Let me just read it for you for the sake of time. I love the way that he describes himself here. He says this, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only slaves, through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. Here's the Apostle Paul, who I think it would be fair to say has been used of God more than any other man in all of history to plant churches, to make great inroads on the kingdom of darkness, bringing the light, And what does he say about himself? What is Paul? Just a slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, and only God can bring fruit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Well, there's a third thing here, and this is the one where I want to really pause and wrestle with this, because I think this is at the heart of, of what Paul is getting at when he says, knowing the mercy of God keeps me from losing heart. Knowing the mercy of God keeps me from losing heart. Point number three, God's mercy makes ministry an incredible privilege. God's mercy makes ministry an an incredible privilege. What he's getting at here, and though he doesn't flesh it out, but when the scriptures talk about the mercy of God, typically the focus is on what God did in saving us. Paul recognizes, in fact, Paul never forgot that God showed mercy to him while he was still a sinner. And Paul knew this, I think, better than just about anybody else who ever lived. After all, you know the story, Paul was not only was not always Paul the Apostle. He was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a man who was bent on destroying the church. You'll recall that uh, he was there at the stoning of Stephen, cheering on those who were putting to death this leader of the early church who was corrupting Judaism in Paul's eyes. And something happened on that day. As Paul watched Stephen die, he had a revelation, an epiphany. That's my calling, to kill members of the way, to destroy what he viewed as this heretical group who claimed that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, was actually the Messiah and the Son of God. So when Paul had this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, knowing that backstory. How do you think Paul expected Jesus to respond to him? You'll remember the dialogue between the two of them. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine how Saul must have felt at that point in time? Here is the one whose name he has been trying to stamp out 
in all of his risen glory, calling him to account for what he's been doing. And certainly, Paul must have thought that Jesus' next words were going to be a description of the painful death that he was about to die before being cast for all eternity into hell. A terrifying, terrifying moment that it must have been. But instead, rather than the next words of Jesus being a pronouncement of his death sentence, instead Jesus says in Acts chapter 9, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. It goes completely against what Paul was expecting. Jesus is showing him mercy. You see why Paul never gave up in ministry? He could always look back on the reality that Jesus should have consigned him to hell. Instead, he not only saved him, but he gave him the privilege of ministering in his name. Understanding God's mercy helps us to see ministry as the incredible privilege that it is. And the mercy of God for Paul continued to amaze him right to the very end of his life. And that is why he can exclaim in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Not because, he's not saying that he had battled with sin all of his life. He's looking back on his days before coming to Christ and recognizing that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man who murdered Christians, and he's still, at the end of his life, absolutely blown away by the fact that Jesus would show him mercy rather than showing him judgment and giving him what he deserves. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Well, maybe you're here tonight and you can't relate to Paul's sin. You say, I'm not a murderer. I've never tried to destroy God's church. I'm not a violent man. I wasn't a blasphemer. Well, maybe you're a little bit more like the Apostle John. Apostle John was just a simple blue-collar guy. He was a fisherman who happened to have a bit of a temper. You'll remember that he and his brother were known as the Sons of Thunder, Well, let me read for you a brief statement of how John viewed what God had done for him. And this is from 1 John 3 and verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called sons of God, children of God, and that is what we are. Can you hear the astonishment in John's voice? Can you believe the kind of love the Father has given to us, John is saying? It makes absolutely no sense that we should be called children of God. Now think about it for a minute. John is writing those words some 50 or more years likely after Jesus died and was risen from the dead and John still has this sense of childlike wonder at the mercy of God, at what God has done for him. See, I think many of us don't get as excited as John because we tend to have misconceptions about what, why God saved us. Some people will say God saved us because he looked at us and saw something worth saving. Some people will say God saved us because he liked us. 
Some people will say even that God saved us because he needed us. All of that is absolute heresy, frankly. John knew better, we should know better from the Scripture, that it's actually unthinkable that God would save us, that God would make us his children. After all, Scripture tells us that we were, by nature, children of wrath. We were God's enemies. We were dead in our sins. We were slaves to sins. Our very best was like filthy rags. We had a death sentence hanging over our heads. We were powerless to help ourselves, and we were bound for the lake of fire. There was nothing worth saving, but as human beings, we tend to think that we're really not that bad. Let me illustrate for a minute how bad we are so that we can begin to understand perhaps a little better the mercy of God to us. I want you to imagine that I've got uh, six people standing on stage here with me, the four worst mass murderers in history. So we're going to put Adolf Hitler here. We'll put uh, Joseph Stalin next to him. Uh, We'll put uh, Pol Pot of Cambodia Killing Fields fame next to him. And uh, we'll throw in Idi Amin over here. Maybe there are some other ones. And what we're going to do is this. We're going to extract all the evil and sin out of Adolf Hitler, out of Stalin, out of Pol Pot, and out of Idi Amin. And we're going to take all of that sin all of that wickedness, all of that evil, and we're going to put it in one single person, an uber-evil person, super-evil, okay? And if that person were standing here before you responsible for having committed tens of millions of murders, having tortured tens of millions of people, we would look at that person and we would think, that person is a monster, And what we need to recognize is this. Whether we were saved at five or 50, whether we think we've only sinned a thousand times or a billion times, even one sin is such an offense to our holy God and goes so much against why he made us to give him glory that his revulsion towards us with one sin would be infinitely greater than our revulsion towards our uber-evil person in the illustration. And we don't understand that. We tend to have such a low view of sin, and consequently, we have a low view of God's mercy. But when we begin to realize that all of us, without the blood of Jesus cleansing us, we're so steeped in filth, in sin, that we were an offense to God, And God chose to save us while we were yet sinners. Then we can begin to get a glimpse of the magnitude of God's mercy. And as we see the magnitude of God's mercy pressing on through the challenges of life and ministry suddenly gets a whole lot easier. Look at what God has done for me. Yes, by God's grace, I will be faithful to follow Jesus right to the end of my days. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Look at what God has done for you. 
Take heart in that. Meditate on it. Meditate on the mercy of God. Do you feel discouraged in life, the challenges that you're facing? Perhaps you're trying to raise rebellious children, struggling with that. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage and wanting to give up. Maybe you're struggling in ministry. The reality is, if you look at the statistics, a pretty high percentage of pastors will tell you, and I'm talking about evangelical pastors, and the numbers up in the 50, 60, 70% will say, if I had another option other than pastoral ministry, I would take it. A lot of people are losing heart in life and in ministry, and I want to encourage us tonight to reflect on the mercy of God and let that renew us inwardly and give us new strength for the journey of following Jesus right to the end of the race. Let's pray together. Father, I am overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed that you would save wretches such as us. What amazing grace, what amazing love that you, our God, would die for us. We praise you and our hearts cry out, Who is like the Lord? There is none like you. You who spoke the universe into existence and yet chooses to adopt people like us into your family, to make us your children and to allow us to call you the God of the universe, our heavenly Father, and to know that you care for us, you know our needs, and you delight to shepherd us as your people. We rejoice in you tonight. We thank you for your rich mercy that you have poured out to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray, Father, that we would not take that mercy for granted. Lord, help us day by day to give you the glory and praise that is due your name for the unspeakable thing that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we do that, as we practice the discipline of praise, as we covenant to not be like Israel who constantly forgot all that God had done, as we do that, Lord, may you well up within us that life and that energy and that passion and love for you that will carry us through to the end of the race. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for yourself. We delight to be called by your name. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.